from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket This is Spaz, and you have tuned in to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! I appreciate you stopping by. This episode features my interview with Mr. Dane Conover of Trees. Their Sleep Convention album has just been digitally remastered and expanded on the Rubellin Remasters label, including 12, 12, 12 bonus tracks. And I'm going to talk to Dane about his entire career before, during, and after Trees. So I'd love it if you stick around. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy yourself. So thanks for hanging out. Let's have fun. You got the beach. You got the blanket. You got the fort. You got the bingo. You got the podcast. And what's not to love? When Trees released Sleep Convention, their debut album in 1982, leader Dane Conover had already been heavily involved in the San Diego music scene for over half a dozen years. He was a member of the legendary band The Puppies, who scored with the underground hit Mechanical Beat. When that band split, Dane formed Trees. His friendship with Kim Fowley helped him secure a deal with MCA, and he recorded Sleep Convention with the help of Earl Mankey. With the first single comeback receiving airplay on MTV and radio, many predicted his next single was going to be a worldwide smash. Sadly, with constant regime changes at MCA, the album and the band were pushed aside to make way for new signings, and eventually, Dane and Trees were dropped by the label before recording the sophomore album. 36 years later, the cult of sleep convention has become a phenomenon, and for decades, fans have requested a CD release of the album. Well, their prayers have been answered by the Rubellin Remasters label, who's just released a digitally remastered edition of Sleep Convention, including 12 previously unreleased bonus tracks. I recently chatted with Dane about his career and discovered that although he's best known as Trees, there is so much more to his career than just the Sleep Convention album. Not only did we talk about his entire career, he also gave me access to his vast audio archives. So, prepare to be dazzled. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my conversation with Dane Conover. Before we discuss the album Sleep Convention, let's talk about the roots of trees. Now, you grew up in Long Island and you spent a lot of time in the library reading books about UFOs because you didn't have any TV at home. Now, it was during this time that you really got into music as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how all of that came together? Yeah, uh, I you know, grew up with a radio by my bedside, first of all, and that was, we did not have a television, so the radio, I would listen to WABC out of New York, and the, at that time, the radio was very eclectic, uh, the, what they would play, I mean, it would be the Beatles and Frank Sinatra within the same hour, so I was exposed to a lot of great music, and the Beatles, you know, caused a huge sensation, I mean, my sister was a big fan, and I heard really good songwriting really early on and that's where I you know I developed a love of music at that point but I also concurrently was uh, reading a lot of uh, things like the UFO I was really interested in UFOs <laughs> that sounds crazy but uh, 
And we had a Grundig tape recorder that my dad brought back from Germany. And you could record, we would make family recordings. It was a type of entertainment. So when it was my turn to make a recording, I would make sound effects with my, my you know, beep, 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 these types of things. And it was a lot of fun. I, I loved the process of, you know, working with the Grundig. It had a little monitor light that was like a green eye that would glow. And if you made louder sound, the glow would get brighter. It was just a fantastic experience to have. So I really started recording around 1964, and I made countless recordings. This is the noise it makes as it awakes, catches, and eats its prey. This is when it was waiting. That's really how I started. I didn't have any instruments that I played initially. Uh, I took piano lessons, but I hated it. You know, it was all like an old person with stinking breath, and I just that type of thing did not work for me at all. But I slowly started. Uh, getting into, you know, realizing that I could, uh, I would think of melodies in my head. I always did. Even as a little kid, I would tap on my desk and melodies would be playing in my head. And I really enjoyed, I didn't think much about it. It was just part of, you know, what I would do. And so in 1969, I, then it started turning into this thing where I wanted a mini bike or a bass. And I wanted a bass because you could play in a band. I loved the way amps looked. I started really enjoying, you know, the idea of making noise, really. And uh, it was going to be a mini bike or a bass. I ended up getting a copy of a of a Hofner bass, which was what Paul McCartney played. A Hofner, it looked like a violin kind of. I got a got one of those, and an Ampeg B15 Portaflex, which was a 15-inch speaker with a tube-driven amp that could fold down into it, and it had wheels. And that was really the beginning. I could not play at all, but, you know, I could get some volume going, and I started jamming with uh, other kids locally and uh, just doing it anyway, you know. That's kind of how it started. Was there a particular moment in time that inspired you to take becoming a musician more seriously? Or was that just sort of a step-by-step gradual thing? Um, I would say it was really step-by-step because I never really took it seriously in the context of of the word serious. It was more for fun. Uh, I loved the process. I still do. It it was, you know, it was an entertaining. It was like self-entertainment, something that you can do that's not that difficult and it's a lot of fun. People liked it. I liked it, so it was more like a, why not? And I always had confidence that, you know, if, you, if I analyzed it seriously at all, it was that I just had confidence that what I was doing was, was good. Even, though, even when it wasn't good, I thought it was good. <laughs> so I remember my, one time my, uh, my dad was saying, you know, because I was up in my bedroom, this is in high school, and I'd play my guitar like, full i had a fender jaguar through a little champ amp and i would crank it up to get the you know to get that nice sound and my dad would say you know that it's not really that good what you're doing it's not you know it's not really that and i thought who are you what are you talking about it's great so you have to have that you you really have to believe in yourself from the beginning if you're going to do stuff just how it is. Well, you ended up in California. Um, when did you move there? And can you tell me about this whole period in time? Because that's when you started playing in, in bands. Yeah. Uh, moved to California in 1970 and uh, brought out the, the bass and the amp with me. And uh, I started jam at that point, and I started meeting other guys that were playing and everybody was better than me at that point especially um but i would play with them you know i would jam with guys and it was it was fun and the very first band that really worked stuff out and and played uh live was a band called rain shadow 
and Rain Shadow was in high school. That was, and we were very like, progressive, or we wanted to be progressive. And uh, I was playing uh, guitar at that point. We had a really good keyboard player and an incredible drummer and bass player. Everybody was really good, and our stuff was extremely involved and progressive, like really long things that had all these parts. And it was a lot of fun. But I, you know, we weren't really good enough to pull off that type of thing in any professional context. But that's really how it started. And then the first band that played live at a junior high school was a band called Dr. No, uh, spelled K-N-O-W, Dr. No. And we had our first gig playing at Lemon Grove Junior High School down by San Diego. And I think we got 75 bucks, and it was, like, really fun. I mean, it, that was in an auditorium, and it was loud, and it was... That was really fun. I think that's actually the only gig Dr. No ever played. And then from there, it went into this band, uh, another band, which is kind of an interesting story, a band called Bonehead. This guy had a real human skull, a real human skull that he attached to a mannequin dressed in a green velvet tuxedo. And what they used to do was they'd order pizza and they have this skeleton at the door saying, just leave the money and get out of here. <laughs> you know, and order pizza. And we thought, you know, it'd be fun to have that guy fronting a band. So we started uh, putting together this set, and we actually played at my high school in the quad outdoors. And there was a guy that would hide down behind the amps, and we had a, a little, like, wire that would pull the jaw open and close, spring-loaded thing. And so it would make it seem like Bonehead would be, like, at the mic, and this other guy would be doing the vocals, and... We played, I can't believe it, I wish there was a film of it. We played at my high school, and people didn't know what to do. It's like, what is this? It was very weird, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Look at the moon, oh, she's tied up there in her underwear. Ooh. Who were your greatest influences as a songwriter at that point? Because obviously, you know, you've got this novelty weirdness, but it's also very creative. And has your influences changed over time? Uh, I wouldn't really say that it's changed. If anything, I, I've gotten a, a much more broad uh, outlook now than I had then. I was very, it's weird. It seems like the younger you are, the more prejudicial you can be regarding uh, music, especially, or arts. Anything with a saxophone was like, no, no. And I didn't like blues. I do now, but I don't even know why I didn't. But uh, it was just a weird thing. It was like a very limited, the things I liked were, you know, experimental electronic music, um, of course, all the the bands that were on the radio at that time, they were, there were so many good bands. You know, there was the Beatles and the Stones and the Who, and er, that stuff was in the Kinks. I loved all that stuff. I had a treasured Kinks album called Face to Face, and I had a fire in my bedroom when I was in high school from a candle falling over and, and starting a fire while I was asleep. I woke up and the, half the room was on fire. It burned part of my face-to-face -face album so after that i could only listen to like the you know go three tracks in before the it was past the burned warp and i could still play my kinks album that was the stuff that you know i like and any influence was probably uh based on hearing songs that had a very strong melodic presence and then just pure wackiness you know you got to remember that the 60s especially you had crazy things on it was just a crazy era where Crazy was popular. You had, you know, I you had Bewitched, you know, uh, I Dream of Genie, Batman, crazy stuff on TV, which filtered down into, and then, you know, 007, the spy stuff. I loved things like that with the little gadgets and devices and, you know, and something I forgot to say, the World's Fair. I went to the New York World's Fair in 1964. That was huge. That was like one of the major points of that whole decade for me was going to the World's Fair and seeing the future. You know, that, that was incredibly exciting. Um, 
And I really, you know, always wanted to think in terms of future stuff, things that are going to happen. And, of course, none of it did or it happened differently. I was into cars then, uh, car design. Uh, I loved the cars from the 50s and, and the 60s. And I would read car books. I built endless models, and I would take the models and, and uh, like, take an airplane model and put the wings of the airplane onto the sides of a car and turn a, you know, a sedan into a little two-door car that I would, like, take a little plastic hacksaw and, you know, trim things down and, and create. I wish I ha still had them. I would create new versions of things with plastic. So that was, in a way, you could argue that that was the beginning of the sense of composition assembling they, and I I developed a love for assembling things I would say you know that's how I look at songwriting it's an assembly you have parts and you put them together and you make something and you don't know if it's going to be a, you know you you kind of have to go by inspiration uh, and you know be motivated by the process it has to be fun to do and if it's if you're lucky and you do something at an inspired moment, then it'll resonate with someone else. You, you don't know. I mean, many, many dogs are created along the way. Not to insult dogs. I, I love dogs. There's a guy in a band called Four Eyes I used to hang out with. We used to say that songs that were no good had to be relegated to the turkey ranch. It was like a ranch of bad songs. <laughs> that's where they went. So that's going to the turkey ranch. Every little jack in the box Every little talk the bell Your first recordings were with a band called Blue Wind, and you released your first track, Earthquake, on a compilation in 1977. How long did Blue Wind last? Blue Wind lasted until 1980. Uh, we, we started out, it was interesting, we started out as two acoustic guitars, uh, a French horn, a flute, and I played Arp Odyssey. I did the bass end of things, and, and sometimes effects and stuff. So we were an interesting aggregation. We were called something like a, an electronic acoustic experience. I think it said that on our calling card. And we were pretty, we got pretty popular, but we started getting jobs in bars. And eventually the, all the songs, you know, for the most part, became covers of things that were on the radio. We did, you know, Tom Petty and Cheap Trick, and we did well. But the problem is, it's that, that age-old thing, like... Uh, how do you go from that into doing your own stuff and how do you introduce people to it? And that apologetic, well, we're going to now we're going to do one of our own. I never liked that. It was more like, eh, you know, and then the, finally the guitar player said, well, I, why should I learn your riffs? I'd like try to show him a song. I, I don't want to learn your riffs. And I said, why not? It's part of a song. He goes, because you're not famous. You're as famous as so-and-so. I, I would learn your riff, but you're just a guy in the band. You know, that turned into that. And that's what led to the puppies in 1980, because that the puppies, the idea was we were going to do all our own stuff, not even attempt to get gigs at you know at places where they expected cover bands, because at that time there were a lot of there was good money to be made in cover bands. I made a good living, and there were a lot of places to play. You know, there were so many gigs available to a good band playing covers that all through my early 20s. That was how I made a living. You know, we just did gigs. I didn't have any other jobs. And it, it was fun, but, you know, it was always nagging, like, you know, that's not really why I started doing this. Mechanical beats. Mechanical beats. Puppy signed to Stiff America, and you released the single uh, Mechanical Beat. 
what was that whole period like? Because Stiff America was a pretty prestigious label at the time. And did you shop demos or did they happen to catch you at a show or how did that come about? We never shop actively shops because we started having success uh, relatively rapidly. We, we were a pretty good band live. We were a lot of fun. And at that time, it was really exciting. It was the DIY era and all kinds of bands just started springing up doing their own stuff. And, you know, uh, the radio stations would dedicate an hour on Sunday nights, you know, local notes, that type of thing. And everybody would be waiting for their song to get played. And it was really, really exciting. I, I mean, I, it was just incredible to even hear something on the radio and to, and to have a chance to hear it. So that was the impetus for the puppies. Uh, and we played live a lot. And we, there was a gig, um, I think it was at a place called La Paloma Theater, and a lot of bands played, it got a lot of publicity, and Kim Fowley, of all people, came down with Bruce Kirkland, who was, um, I think he was part of Stiff at the time, um, and he wanted to, you know, he was looking for bands to call to try to get deals, uh, you know, with labels up in L.A., so it, what better way than to see a whole bunch of bands at, you know, all playing at one night in one place. After the show, he was kind of holding court, and he liked the puppies, and we sent him some stuff. We started having meetings with him where he would critique our songs, and we would, you know, decide how to shape our set and stuff. And he was the one who actually got the label interested in us, and we got the deal to uh, put out... A single and it was produced by Liam Sternberg who had done uh, who had luck with Walk Like an Egyptian uh, I think a little bit after that but I remember Liam took me out for some coffee and he said you know if you can get one song just one song that performs really well internationally you you're not gonna have to work and I <laughs> never forgot that like what that's a cool idea um, and so we, you know, we did Mechanical Beat backed with Atmosphere, which with the song, the band had two writers, uh, myself and a guy named Richard Falaccio, who was a very good writer in his own right. And uh, so we both contributed and everybody was pretty much on board. The thing that took that band out was too many band meetings. You know, it's just like Spinal Tap. You can't talk about rock and roll so much if you're trying to do it, you, you you play it, and that's fine, but if you talk too much, it gets bogged down. Um, you know, the, and I always used to think, if you've ever heard the Trogs tape, that's a quintessential Spinal Tap moment. I recommend anybody who's thinking about being in a band, dig up the Trogs tape, listen carefully, my friends. This will happen to you. Given to it, it's a fucking number one. It is. Whether you, well, you like think so really. or not, that is a number fucking one, and if... If that uh, bastard don't go, then you I, I fucking retire. I fucking do. I think it Bollocks. is a good song. I agree, it is a good song. But it fucking will, won't be unless we spend a little bit of fucking thought and imagination to fucking make it fucking number one. You gotta put a little bit of fucking fairy dust over the bastard. You know, look at you know. Well, we'll put some fairy dust well, over it. I'll piss over the tape. I'm a fairy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's you know. I don't know what. Were you planning at the time? Was the deal with Stiff America just a one-off single deal? Yeah, it was a one-off, uh, you know, with it. We also ended up, though, on an EP. Another band on that label was Men Without Hats. Doing the safety dance. Remember that? Everybody look at your hands. I always thought, look at your hands? <laughs> Why? I don't want to look at my hands. They were on that label, and... You know, we were part of a, there was an, I think another band called The Scars or something. I don't know. It's out there somewhere. Our puppy song was on that EP, uh, Sampler, which I don't have a copy of. And those were the only two formats that it came out in. And of course, being, there was, it got, you know, some good, a little bit of good attention, but there was so much going on at that time. There was so much that, it, you know, and also we, I, neglected to mention prior to that we did our own ep which was sort of a calling card and it was called fun is right and it's ironic that it's still floating around out there it had a version of mechanical beat on it not the same one but it had a version of it 
And not too long ago, Jimmy Fallon was holding it in his hand, waving it around on this segment called Do Not Play. And his band learned part of the song Cat Food. And they played and And, of course, it made all the people who remember the puppies, you guys got to get back together. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but it was really, really cool to see that record. And, and everyone thought they discovered it. It turns out that my nephew sent it to the show. And they, they saw it and utilized it. It wasn't some discovery, you know, it was just the way that it unfolded. But it was cool that they did it at all. I mean, it, you know, really, really pretty cool to be on The Tonight Show with a song about someone uh, discovering that his grandmother is eating cat food. Then I come by unexpected And I see my grandma eating cat food Cat food, nothing for a talk That's another thing about that era. Wackiness was in. So it dovetailed right in with my penchant for that, which came from hearing things like, they're coming to take me away. Remember that in the 60s? That's what we grew up with. So regurgitating that in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, a lot of people were. An interesting thing about that era is how many bands that didn't know each other had certain themes that seemed to be common. It was almost like something was in the water or in the air. Everybody had wacky songs, you know, uh, look at Devo, and they, they built a career out of some crazy stuff. And I don't know how that, how that was, because it didn't really have radio support as much as we like to believe now. It, it didn't. You know, in those days, you would not hear that stuff in a supermarket like you do now. Um, and so, that, how did, you know, and there was no internet, so... How is it that bands would do the same types of songs with weird themes? And um, it's just interesting, you know, because my wife, Marissa, she was in the band called The Bodies. And when we look back at the songs they played, same years, I didn't know her then. Um, You know, weird subjects for songs, and it seemed like everybody was doing that. But how? You should have seen the phone bill. Puppy Split, you put together a project called Trees. Was this initially a band at first, or was it always just a vehicle for you? Yeah, it was never a band. Uh, What happened was when the puppies were together, you know, Kim Fowley took me aside and said, you know, he goes, you are a primary songwriter in this band. He said, keep me up to date, you know, no matter what happens, if if this thing falls apart, just uh, keep me up to date with whatever you're writing, because he believed in me as a writer. So I would send him tapes, and he took uh, a four-track recording I did of 11 a.m., which is on the reissue, to a number of places. MCA bought it. They they wanted to do a deal based on that one song, and there was something in the song. It had a certain feel to it, a certain magical sound, and then when it came up that I was going to get a possible deal, it was like, well, what do you want to call it? And I thought... You know, James Taylor, you know, I don't want, if I use my name, Dane Conover, people are going to think, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's a singer-songwriter. And there's so many people who just use their names, and that's all well and good, but I'm, you know, I'm not Stephen Bishop. Let's make it seem like there's a, a band. I think it's more appropriate because it's more, you know, it's a studio creation. It's not, it's not a band, really. And so I had a list of possible names 
for this aggregation, this supposed aggregation. And I liked trees because it was easy to say. It, it looked good in print. It didn't. I didn't realize it had already been used by a acoustic band in England, like a folk psych folk band. MCA did a great job with the graphics on that. I, I loved the. They came up with that trees logo with the little icons of the trees. And that was a guy named George Osaki who worked at MCA at the time. And I was really thankful that they did that rather than there was a certain kind of font that was starting to get popular that looked like a lipstick scrawled across a mirror. You remember that? It was like kind of cheesy with like a like a pink or purple or something. I thought, don't do that. And they didn't. <laughs> Thank God they didn't. So I lucked out. It's 11 a.m. How did you get hooked up with Earl Mankey, who recorded and mixed the Sleep Convention album? Because he's done a lot of work, but he's not known for really working on stuff that features a, a fair amount of keyboards. That's true, yeah. He was uh, he had been working with Kim for The Quick. The Quick, uh, they got a deal for The Quick, and he was the engineer, and also he was the engineer for The Beach Boys. Uh, and I was really thankful that he... Uh, that he was going to be engineering that album because I I really like his work. He's he's a consistently good engineer. He has a good ear uh, for sound placement and, you know, in a collection of material that's all put together, he's he's very good that way. And we were totally on the same page in terms of of how to make things sound. You know, we would discuss each track while we were putting it together and he always seemed to know exactly the way to make it sound the way I wanted it to sound, you know, and I never had any arguments with him, you know. He, he's really good with the, the sonic placement in the, and in where things take place in the spectrum of the sound and the location. There's so many little things to think about as an engineer, and he was just on it, you know, and we had so much fun doing that. Uh, to this day, he said that's the most fun he ever had on any project in his whole career was that album, which is really cool. Don't enjoy it when it moves too fast, I wanna slow it down. Don't expect to hear the telephone ring or someone at the door, no way. Felt to sleep again, still there while I can. Keep the daylight. Technically, a pop or rock band. On Sleep Convention, the use of keyboards ensure that you'd be classified as a synth band in some people's eyes. Did the label find it hard to market the album? Well, here's what happened with MCA. Within a month of that album coming out, most of the people at the label were gone due to a, a huge turnover. The pres- I actually w- went through a couple of presidents, and the album survived. Uh, the guy that was president when the record came out was not the guy that was president when it got signed. And then after it came out, there was yet another one, and Irving Azoff came in and swept the place clean. It was all you know different people, and so what happened was there was never really much in the way of... In fact, there really was very little in the way of marketing, because right when they started doing that, um, they were gone. And the new regime that came in really didn't have much interest in stuff that had been on the table prior to that, you know, just how it is in the politics of the business. They they started a whole new thing, and anything that was from the former regime was kind of like in, in Russia when they would, like, put a new president, all of a sudden you wouldn't see Khrushchev anymore, that kind of thing. Uh, he would just disappear. And, I, I you know, I... It's, 
they're blameless. It was just the way it was. But that uh, critics liked it. It always got good reviews, and but it really never had much of a chance because right after it came out, like I said, it just the whole thing was all different people. The original staff were really excited about it, and one guy told me that he he cried when he heard it, which I was like, well, I think you have a bigger issue than this record. <laughs> You're gonna cry. Uh, let's talk about that little dog. Come back, maybe your best known track, but there are others like, of course, Delta Sleep, the aforementioned 11 a.m., Wildwood, that are just as good, if not better. Now, in hindsight, what are your thoughts on the album? Well, the interesting thing about um, about the, the comeback song was that that was the song MCA decided that that was going to be the single. They were having some trouble. They liked all the songs, and that was one of their, their quandary was like, okay, which one should the single be? And they decided it was going to be that song, and they pressed up some 45s, and they... Uh, MTV wanted Delta Sleep. They asked them for it, but they wouldn't give it to them. They said, that's not the single. We're, you know, we're giving you uh, Come Back. And it got a little bit of play on MTV, but MTV had specifically asked for Delta Sleep, which had a video, but they would not give it to them at the time. So, you know, looking back at it, who knows what, how it would have transpired had something else been the focal point, you know, if there is a focal point to be had. If it had been, because Delta Sleep always seemed to be the one that people really liked, but it wasn't, you know, it was not the focus item at the time. So, you know, I always think oh, each song is its own entity. You never know what people are going to like. Uh, you just don't know. In fact, just yesterday, we there's a station in uh, a Swiss online radio station called 80sforever.ch, and we got a message from them that they really like the unreleased version of Comeback, which is, uh, you know, a guy-girl duet that I did with Missy, Marissa, who's now my wife. We did that together where we traded vocals back and forth, complete with a little argument in the middle of it. It was very much an 80s kind of thing, you know, sort of a missing persons thing. But who would have ever thought that, you know, somebody would say, ah, I love that. And I mean, it was not even on the record at the time. Um, it was a little too far off of what the record was supposed to be. That you know, the idea of this sort of Dick and Dee Dee vocals. None of the other songs had that, so that was uh, switched out. And what I did was I used the same track and I wrote uh, the comeback that's on the out. The comeback that was released was just a whole new song written over the the backing track. Uh, for it. That's why the backing track is the same on both of those versions. We had a real good time. Don't deny it. You so quiet and I was so loud. I was so loud. Ooh, too much too soon. Left no stone unturned. Let that candle Sleep Convention was recently reissued by Rubellin Remasters, 12 bonus tracks, 10 of those are previously unreleased. Do the recordings date from the same period as the songs on the album? Yeah, pretty much almost exactly the same. It's just that they were a, a little bit after that for the most part because uh, at the time uh, I was starting to map out what was going to be a second album. And so with the bonus tracks in a way are, are the second album. Uh, it was going to be called Pandora's Box. I had started mapping it out. You know, you always have to assume you're going to keep going no matter what you do in life. You, it's like, this is what I'll do next. And it was going to be called Pandora's Box, you know, with a sort of a theme about how things are, if, if there's any theme at all, it was about how things were getting more and more out of control. And I love the Pandora's Box idea. So that was going to be the, the next album. And that's, you know, I did different versions of those songs, and 
we put put it together as best we could, given the the tracks that are extant, you know, for that second album. So that's really what the bonus is. It's like, well, here's the first album, and here's what would have been the second had things just kept rolling along. And there are, you know, many, many tracks that's, that, that's just what it would have been. So that's kind of cool. I was really glad when uh, Scott Davies at Rubellin, you know, had the uh, foresight to go ahead and, and since a CD has the capacity, why not put that out there instead of just a straight reissue um, to go ahead and make it so that it's a more entertaining experience. MCA. Which direction did you head? Did you continue under the name Trees or did you just go in a completely different direction? Well, I, I was still I, I still was still enamored of the idea of the Trees concept and I uh, continued to record and, and uh, you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to get to do more records but it seemed increasingly unlikely as the regime, especially once the regime changed. Um, but then I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, it'll get picked, something will get picked up by another label. You never know. So I just continued to go ahead and, and uh, record like I always did, um, you know, writing and recording just because uh, I like the process. I would do it in, anyways. And I was building up a catalog. And, you know, the idea for me is always do, you know, spew the edit, you know, put your stuff out, get your things recorded, or even if it's just a cassette with an idea, go ahead and do it, you know, and just keep it somewhere. Don't worry about it. Just keep plugging away because that's part of the process of, of being a creative person in life is to always be doing things. Then you, later on, you can look back and say, man, you know, I did a lot of stuff and uh, some of it's good. And then you have the turkey ranch, but it's it's the process. You know, my little dog spot got hit by a car. Hubba, 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 hubba. Put his guts in a box and put him in a drawer. Hubba, 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 hubba. Oh, I'm a happy boy. Happy boy. Oh, I'm a happy boy. Happy boy. Oh, ain't it good when things are going your way? Hey, hey. Well, your song, Happy Boy, in 1985, ended up on the debut album by the Beat Farmers. How did the song end up on their record? Well, Country Dick Montana, who was the Bee Farmer's frontman uh, at the time, R.I.P., he's left the building since then, um, he, I knew him because of the band scene. As I said, all the bands were doing the DIY. He was in a band called the Penetrators, who were initially one of the biggest bands around in San Diego at the time, because they were one of the first, and they were a lot of fun live, and he was a drummer in that band. He wasn't a frontman yet, but he became in the beat farmers i knew him and he knew that i wrote songs you know uh and he said give me a cassette of your wackiest weirdest stuff so okay that's not a problem you want uh can i take a shit on your desk i have that um i seriously i did write a song called can i take a shit on your desk got that idea from al cooper who said that he did that in a drunken night when he was a staff writer, and the, the janitor came in in the morning and said, Do you do this? You better get out of here. <laughs> There's the ditty for you. So, you know, he, I gave him that tape, and next thing I know, um, I was out of the country. I lived in Japan for a few years, and then I heard, um, you know, by the way, they recorded that. And it's, you know, it's making a little bit of an impact. It's like, what the heck? It's very weird. A guy, you know, his dog gets hit by a car, and he... He puts the guts in a box and forgets to bury it, and it's like in a drawer in his house, and he starts to smell something, wondering what it, he remembers it, and he starts laughing. That's that's very grim. Acid, 
eventually started a duo called Pop Jams with your wife, Marissa. How long has that project been going on, and do you find that you have to write differently for a female voice? Well, here's what's interesting about the Pop Jams idea. You know, if you think about it, the very first Pop Jams recording is really on the Trees album now with the reissue, with the, the, the comeback that she did with me. That's where I met her. She was known as Missy back then, and I went into the studio and there she was and I was like whoa who's this you know I it was pretty much love at first sight although we were friends for many many years prior to getting together but she I loved uh, working with her and she sang backing vocals on 11 a.m. you can especially hear her on the uh, alternate version of it and we did some I became friends with her and her then husband in fact they the, how I really got to know her at all was she was there and they were doing a session at night when my my sessions would stop at five o'clock i would record with earl like uh up until about five o'clock and i think we started at 10 in the morning i can't remember exactly but it was they were like daytime things and then and then he had a session with with her thing uh at night and they were working on this song for this teenager that they were grooming they did a version of dizzy by tommy Rowe, and they did this vocal and I helped them record it because they were in there with Earl. I was camping at Earl's. He he allowed me to camp out in the studio so I didn't have to stay in a hotel or something. So I was always there. And uh they were doing this thing it had this thing that went, Oh, oh and I thought, God, that's like Wizard of Oz, you know, oh 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 and that kind of thing was part of that eighties thing. I don't know what it was, but everybody started doing it. And I loved it. And and so if you listen to the Trees album you can hear that, like on Shock of the Nukes, oh, 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 that type of vocal thing. She's gonna win your heart, making it easy, winning you over. She's gonna turn your head around, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tie you up in a telephone line. That was directly as a result of doing it with those guys. Anyways, that's how I got to know Marissa and was working with her in a studio context. And then when we got together, of course, the very first thing we did was start to record stuff because she was always in the business herself, mostly on the corporate side. Um, and she she could sing. And I've always liked working with people. I love working with other people. And so... The, in terms of getting the songs, her key kind of overlaps with mine. There's a point where it goes too high for me, and then her voice can take over. And the the uh, timbre, the timbre of our voice is very similar in the, some certain range. So it was kind of interesting that we, you know, we could get a certain sound, and that became like a pop gem sound. And a lot of the stuff that she would sing would be songs I would write that, you know, if they were in a slightly lower key I could sing them if they were in a slightly higher key she could sing them other than that there was no special criterion for that it was more just uh, to be able to keep recording and we did all kinds of stuff and we got more and more into as the gear got more sophisticated we you know we were like kind of doing an ABBA thing where we do more and more layers like more and more heavily layered which was a, a hell of a lot of fun <laughs> got really thick you know it's like uh, finally i got up to 32 tracks and it was like well that you don't need to go more than that in fact i'm kind of rethinking now into a more uh, uh, simpler types of arrangements um you know, you know i don't want to slip into being progressive it'll be full circle exactly now that there's a resurgence of interest in your music do you plan to release any more archival trees recordings or maybe pop gems or at least make them available on a Bandcamp page or something well, yeah, we're definitely thinking along those lines, and I have a, a massive catalog of all kinds of stuff, you know, including the Turkey Ranch. Um, and I'm, you know, I've been uh, Rubellen has expressed an interest in a in a follow up 
um, you know, things going the right way, uh, we would probably do that. Um, no reason not to. So, yeah, definite possibility. Where can listeners go to buy the Tree CD and learn more about you and uh, your post-sleep convention recordings and listen to some music? Well, at this point, uh, Rubellin Remasters is the best place to obtain the album uh, because that's the company that made it. Uh, it's available in, in other venues like Amazon, and but I will say the source is always the best because um, it's you know a small label and very dedicated. And I have to say at this juncture that Scott Davies did an incredible job uh, remastering that album. It really sounds good, and that could have gone horribly wrong, you know, someone, because he was the one who got the license to do it. Anyone could have if they had ponied up the, the cash, and somebody could have made it sound awful and done a horrible reissue. So I'm really, really thankful that he is detail-oriented. I couldn't have asked for a better uh, reissue person. You know, we have uh, Reverb Nation has a Pop Gems channel. Um, there's some stuff there. We haven't done anything with it lately. You know, hopefully in the future we'll I'll have some more things coming out and just stay tuned. here at Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Dane Conover for hanging out with me here in the Blanket Fort. And a special thank you to Scott Davies and Rubellin Remasters. And a very, very special thank you to you for listening and hanging out with all of us. Smell you later. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe.